And so I want you to get your message notes out, get your Bibles out. And uh, we're, of course, in a Q&A series, and I'm going to answer a few of our questions that have been submitted and, um, and, and kind of take a few minutes to get to really our primary question we're going to deal with today. And so let's pray before we begin, and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for the solutions that you hold to our questions. Thank you for speaking in your voice to our heart. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word, as we discuss the message of truth, that it would illuminate our lives and that we would have grace to obey and grace to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's, here's the first question. Um, what is the structure of our church, elders? Um, what decisions do they direct uh, preaching direction, financial decisions, location. I'm going to give you the formal um, government of our church as we've implemented it this last year. Uh, as a church plant, of course, I was encouraged when we stopped or when we started uh, that we should actually say, you know, it, when it's really hard to figure out how to add life to structure. So start with life, and once there's a life, a, a growing body of believers, then add the structure. It's a lot easier. And so instead of, uh, instead of starting with structure, we added structure, and that's, of course, been quite natural. And so we have, um, we have three roles for elders, all right? And we have three kind of types of elders. And so the first type is an overseer, and those are people that... Uh, speak into my life, they would, you might call them apostolic elders. They would be the kind of people that would be apostles speaking into the life of our church. And, uh, and they relate to me. They have no governmental authority necessarily to direct the day-to-day affairs of the church, but they speak relationally into the life of our church. And if, they, if something were to happen to me, if, um, if I were to die or something, if I'd get sick or if I did something really stupid or foolish, that would trigger their governmental involvement uh, to some degree. But um, they, they come in and they speak from time to time. They speak into my life consistently. Next month, uh, a little over a month from now, Rob Brindle will be here from a church in Denver called Denver United. He is a, a really good friend, and you're going to enjoy hearing from him. And so here's, here's they are, overseers, Brady Boyd from New Life Church, Rob Brindle, Denver United, Tom Lane from Gateway Church in South Lake. Here's Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands, Britt Hancock from M- Mountain Gateway right here in good old Dripping Springs, U.S. of A. And so he's a missionary, and, and, and him and his wife, Audrey, and, and their whole clan are traveling uh, often, but they base here. So, so overseers uh, are the first type of elder. Then there's something called pastors, and this would be, you might consider this staff elders, providing leadership, vision, spiritual direction for the equipping and empowering and releasing of ministry within the church. And uh, that's, at this, at this moment, that is um, these people that you can see on the screen, uh, me and Marty, Brent, Nathan, Kim, Ken, and Spiro. And uh, so we're, we're leading the, the direction, the day-to-day affairs of the church. And so... Um, that would be another type of eldership role that we would, um, we would have here at the church and part of our governmental structure. And then the third is trustees, which would be non-staff elders. And non-staff elders give guidance, direction, and approval uh, for 
uh, purchasing of facilities, major financial decisions of the church, budgeting, that kind of thing. They give their approval to, to those, and they, they help us make really good decisions. And so you see three different groups of people. Here's, uh, here's the trustees, um, Larry Foster, Wayne Johnson, Glenn Biles, Derek Peterson, and Eric Gomez. And so these are people that are speaking into our next move out of this building. What are we going to do next? How is that going to work? And we're, I mean, we are exploring all kinds of options and opportunities uh, there. And so, so the, the separation of powers helps us be safe, right? So we have different roles for different eldership uh, types. And so that helps us maintain uh, a really good cooperation and collaboration but here's what I believe about church. I believe we are supposed to be pastor-led. I believe, we believe in a pastor-led congregation. And that means, you know, God calls a person to be a leader of a group of people. And, but he, if he's a good leader, he's not going to lead by himself. And so I'm not going to lead by myself. I don't even believe in that. So I'm going to bring people along beside me, and we're going to help lead and direct the church. And I want you to lead as well. And together we'll lead this city into the kingdom of God as we share the message of hope with people. But not only should it be pastor-led, it should be elder-governed. So there are elders to help us sort out the governing dynamics of the church. Sensitive decisions like financial decisions, sensitive decisions about big directions and big, big movement within the church, then we need people's input. We need outside input. We need inside input. And so that's, that's why it's built that way. And then uh, finally, not only should it be pastor-led, it should be elder-governed. And then thirdly, it should be congregation-owned. Don't look at me like that. This is, not, this is not my church, it's your church. This is not just my community, this is our community together. The scripture teaches that pastors are really, pastors, all the people with the fivefold ministry gift, um, evangelists, pastors, teachers, apostles and prophets, they all are for equipping and empowering and releasing people in ministry. And we have all of those functioning within our church. All those dynamics are fun functioning within our family of believers. But it is the church body that does the work of the ministry, that teaches one another, that encourages one another, that shares with one another, that, that actually takes care of each other. That's how our church functions, and that's, the, that's kind of a, an overview of the governmental structure of our church. All right? Uh, let's go to the next question. Why the name One Chapel? How did you come to pick it? I was sitting in my study one day five and a half years ago, I think, maybe, maybe a little further, and I was praying about planting one chapel, and I was, we were wrestling with names, and I had purchased like 40 domain names. <laughs> I had purchased all these domain names that I had in case we wanted to use the name of the church, and I'd already had the name one chapel, but I was like, I, I just couldn't settle on it because the Lord hadn't spoken to me. So I'm reading my, my one-year Bible, the daily Bible reading, and it's John 17. And in that, Jesus prays for his disciples and for us. And as he prays for his disciples, he says this. He says, Father, make them one like you and I are one. But then he gave a reason. There's a reason we should be one. 
There's a reason for unity to function well. And he said, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Which was like a, it just happened to me. It was like, yes, this is it. We are answering the prayer that Jesus prayed. There's no better prayer to answer. And so what happened was we decided to be one chapel. And what it has come to mean is a bunch of people who are from diverse backgrounds, who have diverse um, experiences, who have a diversity of points of view of life coming together and being willing to come under the banner of Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord, and become united. And when we do that, and when we choose it, when we choose to unite together in purpose and in community, the, the Bible says the world will believe that Jesus was sent. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for each other. So that's where one chapel came from. All right, why is the juice so icky? There's a picture of the, this little person sitting on a chair and the back of the chair getting the juice out of the back of the chair and drinking it. I do have an answer for this. I would rather us not drink the icky juice. Blood tastes worse. <laughs> That's horrible. That's terrible. So, I, I, but, here's, but here's the thing. We started this in the movie theater. We had these little cup holders in the movie theater, and we just put the little elements in there. Uh, actually, we started with, we borrowed some giant stacks of uh, communion uh, trays, and it took like 15, 20 minutes to get everybody to go through it. It was terrible. I much prefer people getting out of their seats and going to a station and breaking off a piece of bread and drinking real juice in order, to, <laughs> in order to participate in the Eucharist. But this room is not set up well for it, for people to move around, and we get in traffic jams. So we've decided on these little elements. But here's, the, here's what I love about these elements. I think that what, what we get to say is, is that it seems so common, such an ordinary little container. How can something so common contain something so holy? It becomes holy, not because it already is, but because when faith is added to it, when we receive it, when we take a moment to remember, something mysterious happens. Our mind, our heart, our soul, our worship just changes the inside of us. And we remember this moment that Christ died for us and his life and resurrection comes alive in us. And it's the same thing that he does. He takes common, ordinary containers like you and me. And he puts his holiness inside them. It's exactly, it's exactly like that. And so I think it's a great illustration. Um, I do not believe in transubstantiation, if there's any misunderstanding here. That's a Catholic idea about how it be actually becomes the body and blood. I'm, I'm not sure Catholics would approve of the way we're doing it right now. But, but I, do believe that, I do believe that there is some mystical and mysterious moment where God does something in the heart of a person when they remember when they, when they receive communion, when they come to the table of the Lord, okay? All right, here we go. When's your next baptizing? <laughs> Baptism. Uh, baptizing, it looks like. It's uh, November 30th, fifth Sunday of the month, November 30th. Uh, could we do a series on biblical conflict resolution? Biblical conflict resolution, Yes. What activities, what activities does uh, One Chapel have during the holidays, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year? We don't do a lot of events. 
Uh, and we don't do that, we don't do a lot of events on purpose because I think that the key, the secret to growth in Christ, the secret to the gospel message being conveyed to another person and then responding to it is all relational. And so even though sometimes events create relationships, I've, I subscribe to what would be called a simple church model. And so we have, we have five things that we really do. Five things. Everybody hold your hand up. Here we go. The first one is we have weekend worship. Come on, keep your hand up. Come on, you guys are like, I'm not doing this. Weekend worship, all right? That's us gathering together for, for vision and celebration and, and community. And then the, the second thing that we do is connect groups. Connect groups, that's getting in community where you live, connecting with people in a deeper level, in a deeper realm. No church can be healthy without connecting at a deeper level. Then there's team one. Team one, everybody say team one. Team one is everybody who makes everything happen. We're having team one night tonight. A whole crew's going to get together. Listen, you've never seen a team like this. It is hilarious. We play games. We do goofy stuff. It's, it's amazing. And everybody's welcome. So we serve. That's what that is. Team one is we serve. Number four, we give. All right? There's a, every, all of us, we do five things. We all give. And when we pool our resources and give to God, when we don't let materialism grab a hold of our hearts, when we offer something to God, he takes it and then uses it better than we could ourselves. And so we give financially. And then number five, we make disciples. Now wait, wait for it, wait for it. Here it comes. Ready, ready, ready. Everything we do has to, has to touch making disciples. Everything we do has to, has to encourage and challenge people to make disciples. Now, disciples are made relationally. Disciples are made in personal, one-on-one, two-on-three, relational dynamics where people are really getting into each other's lives. And so I'm not interested in having a whole bunch of events that keep people from doing that. Does that make sense? We are going to do Christmas Eve service. And, we're, and, and, and in November, I'm about to, un, next week I'm going to unleash, unleash. <laughs> that sounded really dramatic, didn't it? I'm going to unleash on you. I'm going to, I'm going to reveal uh, 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 our next way that we're going to do Love Austin. Love Austin has been an event that we do where we go out and serve people in our community. We're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to make it more personal. And so Love Austin is going to become Love My Neighbor. And we're gonna we're gonna work from from November all the way through to uh, to Christmas Eve, uh, um, just working on being good neighbors. All right, and so uh, that's gonna be fun. Uh, you can look forward to that. All right, here's the big question that I've sort of prepared for today: If God is good, why are there wars, famine, rape, murder, death on this earth, and He does not stop it? This is one of the hardest questions I think Christians can answer. I do think that Christians have the best answer. If you look at some of the other religions, I don't think their answers are satisfactory. If you look at Buddhism, for example, and Buddhists are thoughtful people, but essentially the concept is is that it's not real. And that's how they deal with pain and suffering. It's not real. It doesn't exist. I think Christianity has something to say about it, and I've been around the world and I've seen legitimate pain and suffering, people broken, wounded, um, a loss of dignity, death, disease. 
our view of pain and suffering in America is a little bit skewed. But nonetheless, it still is painful. Sometimes we, sometimes we skew our understanding of what pain and suffering really is. But pain and suffering is part of our real world. And some of you really want to know the answer. Some of you are like, okay, I, I, really, want to, I really want to get this. I don't quite get this. But others of you, you, you kind of already know the answer, but you need help to articulate it better. And so I'm going to say it in a way I hope today that will help you have discussions about this subject. Why is there so much pain and suffering? And it, it, there's several different iterations of this question. If God is so good, why is there so much evil? Uh, you know, how, wh- why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? It's, it, it can be phrased in any number of ways. So how do you have the conversation with somebody who is suffering? Well, you have that conversation much differently than you have the conversation when you're arguing the point. You know, there's two kinds of conversations. There's people who like to argue, and there's people who need to be comforted. Those are two different conversations that we need to be really good at. We have to be good at both. I want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It's not on your notes, but if you just write it down, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Here's what it says, because I'm going I'm to kind of couch our discussion this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's interesting that Paul the Apostle says that we share in the sufferings of Christ but we receive an abundance of comfort through Christ. And so in, in, in a way, we understand suffering and comfort only through the, the lens of Jesus Christ himself. I've suffered some really painful things in my life. Um, one of the first most painful things I can remember was my, my parents' divorce at age 17. Since my dad was a pastor, it was a very difficult journey. We've been very open about that here, and my dad's part of our team, and, and God's done a great thing in, in, in his life and my mother's life, and he's been remarried since then. But there, is a, there, was, a, there was a deep pain that happened to me, a, que- a deep questioning about life and what it really means, and and, and, and church and how it should work because everybody started fighting as a result of our, our family's divorce and it, it, was, it was quite painful. I have a vivid memory of walking down the street. I was so mad at, a, at an altercation about the subject and I had no, uh, no ability to control it, no ability to speak into it. As a 17-year-old, I just felt helpless and, and frustrated and I just took off. And just started walking. I walked for a long time. And I remember in those moments, God, just, why, God, why, why is this all happening? What is going on? And my 17-year-old my mind was trying to process it. I think the next significant moment in my life was when we lost my father-in-law. Um, we were a young married couple, and Amy's dad was a pastor as well, and he died at 49 years old. 
he dropped dead right, right after, right during really a, a meeting, a worship time at church. They were having another speaker and, and he had a massive heart attack and they took him back and tried to work with him in an office, but it became very clear that something bad was happening. They, they took him straight to the hospital and by the time he got there, he was gone. And I remember I had vivid memory of sitting in their home and all the family around and hearing down the hallway Amy's mom weeping like like agonizing and her voice carrying out into the living room as she was just consumed with grief and I sat there as a young pastor and I was thinking to myself this this can this cannot be right this is not how this should work. This can't be, this can't be the way life is. And I remember thinking very clearly, so God, you're saying that, what, there's no guarantees here? What am I doing then? <laughs> what am I trying to tell people? I was a young pastor and I was sorting through, what is the message of the gospel? Is it that nobody is going to have problems? Is it, is it that all suffering, as soon as you accept Christ, is gone? No, that's not, the, that's not the message of the gospel. There's something grander, something greater. And I was wrestling through that. I, I remember the, 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 one, one more brief illustration of uh, an armed gunman showed up at our church one day. And you've, some of you heard me tell the story. And, and they, he started shooting people. Not this church, but the church I came from several years ago. And, and, and I remember getting the, the word, people burst through the doors having lunch upstairs, and, and, and they said, we have gunshots in the building. And I saw the look on their face, and it freaked me out so much. I just got up, and I started running. I didn't wait for the pastor to tell me what to do. I didn't wait for any, you know, collaboration. I ran out the door. It was some kind of parental primal instinct because I knew my son was in the lobby. I ran through the, through the building and it's, you know how your mind goes quick, 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 quick. Oh my, oh, oh my God. God, what is happening? What are you doing? Where are you? My son ended up safe he was hiding behind a dumpster in the parking lot with a bunch of other people. Two girls lost their lives that day. And the pain and the suffering that that family went through was unbearable. And we went through it with them. And so there's a, there's a question here that's real, and we shouldn't make light of it. When we make an argument, we shouldn't, we shouldn't dissect it from comfort. The, the scripture we just read, Jesus, Jesus himself has given us comfort in our sufferings. And then as we receive his comfort, we begin to comfort others. And so if you look at your, look at your message notes, I'm going to give you four things. We're just going to cruise through it here because I want to get to the end where, there's, where the good stuff is, all right? <laughs> so the first thing is there, there are four forces at work in the, in the world, and those forces are God's will. Satan's will, human will, and natural law. 
And if you look at these four forces, these are powerful forces that are happening all the time. So let's take them one at a time. God's will. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells his disciples to pray. What does he tell them? He says, he says pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on where? Earth as it is in Okay, so is God's will done on earth? It is, but not all the time. Is God's will done in heaven? All the time. So God's will is done in heaven all the time. There's no sickness in heaven. There's, there's no disease. There's, there's no weeping. There, there's, there's, there's no suing people in heaven. There are no lawyers in heaven. Well, there may be a few lawyers. There may be a few lawyers, maybe, in heaven. There, and there are doctors in heaven, but they're not practicing. They're not practicing. And so this is, a, this is an incredible thing to think about, that God's will being done all the time. That's something that doesn't happen here on earth. And, of course, the question is, well, why, why doesn't it happen? I was watching an interview um, with the, the guy from KISS, um, Gene Simmons. He was doing an interview. Gene Simmons, you know, he wears makeup and all this stuff when he performs, but he's been doing this thing for, like, 30 years. It's crazy. He's 65 years old now, and he's still doing concerts, okay, from the group Kiss. It's amazing. And he's Jewish, and he was being interviewed, and he, the, the interviewer says, so tell me about your view of God as a Jewish man. And he, and he went on this long tirade, this long thing about how uh, unjust the world is and how foolish this seems and how who, what kind of a god could let things happen like this and and he and and he and he kind of said this he said so so when i meet him which he assumed he would meet him uh i'm going to we're going to have to have a, a good sit down cuz i don't get it <laughs> and i thought that was so interesting because he obviously acknowledges god but he doesn't understand why things have happened the way they've happened. He, he doesn't understand the narrative and the story. We'll talk about that in just a second. God's will is for people to experience life that comes from him that's full of peace, full of strength, full of courage, full of love, full of healing. That is his will. That's his will. Satan's will is the second one, of course. Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil in Luke chapter 4. And the devil takes him up to a high place and shows him all the nations of the world. And, and he says, look, I'll give you all the nations if you'll just worship me. In fact, he says it. I have it written down here directly. He says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. What? Satan says that all the nations and all the, it's all been given to him. I'll give them to you. He says, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus is brilliant, of course, as always. And he says, the scripture says, worship the Lord and serve him only. I ain't worshiping you, fool. Because here, and here, here's what Satan was doing. Satan was offering him a shortcut. Jesus is going to get the nations. 
Jesus is going to rule over the nations in a way that fulfills all that God desires. And the devil was offering him a shortcut. Satan is alive and well. We have an enemy. He's, he, he is the person that rebelled against God in heaven and what most Bible scholars think took a third of the angels and they, he wanted to be like God. He had pride and arrogance and so he, in his pride and arrogance, is constantly trying to get people to worship him. And that's what, that's what all, this, all this battle, spiritual battle is about. He does it with deception and he does it with all kinds of things that are that, are, that ruin people's lives. So the human will, though, here we go, human will, Ephesians 2, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, you followed the ways of this world, he says, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's talking to the Ephesian believers, he says, you, you followed the ways of the world, and the ruler of the, and, and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he acknowledges there's a spirit that's working among us, but you choose to follow it. The best illustration of human will is found in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. If you want to make notes to to the side, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. I think 3 is where they deal with the the garden uh, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, And he puts a tree in the middle of the garden and he says, don't eat of it. (laughs) Wouldn't it have been better if he just like wouldn't have put the tree there? Like, just not, just take the tree, why, why, why? This is the fundamental question, isn't it? Why does he put the tree there? Because God has a higher view of our decision-making capacity than we do, often. God has a high regard for human will. People say stuff all the time about how, he, how God works and how, he, listen, I don't think we understand how much he respects human will. Now, my answer to, well, what about God and his sovereignty and how he makes everything work? Well, okay, so here's my, here's my answer. I think that God, since he is an infinite being, has an infinite number of responses to every decision I'll ever make and every decision you'll ever make. And since he has an infinite number of responses and can think of an infinite number of ways to accomplish his purpose, he gets to use everything but respects my decision to choose. He has an opinion. It'd be good to consult him. Our actions can hurt people. Human will can hurt people. A drunk driver can kill. An angry husband can abuse. A tyrannical ruler can ruin an entire culture because of evil and decisions. Number four, though, is natural law. Natural law means gravity. Everything is, that happens around us, there is bacteria, right? There's a fallen, now here's, here's where it gets a little tricky, there is a fallen world. God created a perfect world in the Garden of Eden and disobedience unleashed destruction. And so the world in its natural state is an amazing place God has created it. He put us here to take care of it. We should take care of it and be good stewards of it. But there are things here that can really hurt you. And uh, gravity is one of them. (laughs) Uh, I don't believe in gravity. Well, then as soon as you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, you're going to meet gravity. 
the reality. And there is a there, there are things that can happen to us in natural law that are not, you know, this Ebola thing that's going on. I mean, the, 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 it's so funny to me because several thousand people have caught it in West Africa. But here, there's only three people in America, and our culture is going nuts. Now, certainly it is dangerous, and that's kind of the point here. But why, why doesn't God just take away Ebola viruses? These four forces create confusion because you often can't tell who does what and what causes what. They're all going on simultaneously. So we want to blame things on God when in reality it's just human will. Sometimes we want to say, oh, the devil made me do it, when really it's you. <laughs> Sometimes we want to say, um, devil, the devil's doing it, and it's just a fact when you wear your seatbelt, the percentage, the odds that you are safe is way higher than if you're not wearing your seatbelt and driving. Marty Irwin. <laughs> and so, and so, the, the deal is, if you get in a wreck and you don't have your, your seatbelt on, you may spin out of the car, fly through the window, and the car will land on you. That's, so what happens if a person dies as a result of that, okay? Oh, I guess God just needed him. No, God didn't need him. God's will is perfectly done in heaven where he is. That was a result of human will and natural law. It actually didn't have anything to do with Satan or God. I mean, directly. See, these are, these are important distinctions that I think we should understand and be able to articulate and help people navigate. There's nothing that bugs me worse than people saying, well, well, everything happens for a reason, as if God, you know, is creating and driving everything. Yep, some of the reasons are bad. Some of the reasons are terrible reasons, really bad decisions based of people. So why doesn't God just get rid of all evil? Why did he just get rid of all the evil? Why didn't he just, okay, so let's practically play that out. How does, if God gets rid of all evil, right, every evil act on earth, right? By the way, he is trying to get rid of evil. But the, but the pra pragmatic way that it, we, we might think of it in our minds, the practical way, okay, so what's he going to do? So every time I have a bad thought, a lightning bolt's going to hit me. That, that would be, that would, he, he, would, he would like stop evil from happening in the world, a bolt of lightning every time I have a bad thought. Uh, I'm silenced every time I want to gossip. You know, have you heard about me? Golden ropes falling down from heaven and turning around, uh, wrapping us up every time we want to hurt somebody. Essentially what God does is he starts undoing free will. He starts undoing people's decisions and then they can't choose him so the first big idea I want you to get is the cost of relationship with God is the mess of our world our messed up world he was willing to pay he's so interested in relationship he is so interested in connecting with humanity that he, he was willing to, to risk the mess we live in right now 
He's willing to risk the mess we live in. Here's a funny, here's a funny thing that, uh, that, that people say. We want God to control everything, right? We want him to get rid of all the stuff we don't like and, and control everything we do like, but we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Why doesn't God get rid of evil? But they don't want him to tell them what to do. By the way, that is the only way to get rid of evil, is if you do exactly what he says. This is an interesting thing. C.S. Lewis says, he said, he said, if God thinks this state of war in the universe is a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or real harm, and something of real importance can actually happen, instead of a toy world, which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it it is worth paying. So our world is best understood as a story rather than a doctrine, right? So let's talk about the story. The big picture, here's the big picture of the story. First there's creation, then there's the fall, then there's redemption, and then there's restoration. You can write those down as I'm talking about them. Creation, God creates it all perfect, and he puts people in the midst of the garden and then gives them the choice and as they choose, the fall happens and damage is unleashed in their relationships to, with one another and their relationships with God. And as that damage begins to filter through the entire world, we go through the flood, we go through the disbursement of languages, we go through all of history until one man shows up and begins to reveal the plan of God to deal with whatever would come, and that is redemption Jesus Christ himself coming to reconcile the world to himself. And then, of course, restoration is the, the restoring of all that is good. Restoration means we, we had something really good to begin with, and it will be restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. That's pretty exciting. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but it's coming. So God is not interested in robots, but in relationship. So look at this scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, so if you accept Christ, if you understand this story, you understand what Christ is doing, the new creation has come. It's already starting. The new heaven and new earth is already starting inside you. The old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only does God reconcile the world to himself through Christ, he includes us in the reconciliation process. So we're supposed to be the ones who fight evil to reconcile the world with God. We're the ones who are supposed to bring the kingdom into the darkness, the light of the gospel into the realms of darkness. This is what God wants from us. And by the way, when we just see it from the vantage point of our own souls and we don't think about anything else, we are missing a huge part of the story. We're missing a huge part of the story. He loves you individually, but he includes you. He includes each of us in the restoring of this world, looking towards the day when it will be fully restored. So here's what he says in 19. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The problem is there is a plan to rid evil. There is a plan to end suffering. Most people just don't like it. <laughs> or they don't believe it. Or they don't want to believe it. And by the way, that's okay. Our nation was built upon the idea that you could talk about ideas freely without persecution, without, um, without uh, wounding people and yelling and screaming. We've kind of strayed far away from that now. And there are greater risks for speaking up than ever before about what you believe in the Bible. But we must. We must speak up about this big story. Here's the big ideas of the story. All right, I'm just going to give it to you. God is the source. When humans think that they're the source of everything, everything goes bad. When I have to produce everything, that's bad. God is the source of life. Life can't be taken by me or anyone else. There is a source of life, real life, and his name is God. Relationship is primary. We are created for community and love with God and with others. Relation, that's what God's all about. He's about relationship. Disobedience in the garden broke the relationship. Therefore, we're trying to restore and repair the relationship we have with him, and he wants us to have relationship with others in, in, that, is, that is productive and beneficial. But the world, of course, we... We fight against that, and sometimes we want to isolate and just be individualistic, and we don't care what other people think, and then we, then we violate them and we, in the name of our own accomplishments. And You've got to remember that relationship is primary. Number three is God is the boss. What? God is the boss. The boss knows better than you. That's really the big deal. God is the, he's the author of life, who gives us his best, and we have to surrender to him. So, and then finally, we understand God role, God's roles and our roles. We begin to understand he has roles that he, that he plays, and we have roles that we play. And as we discover what these roles are, as we discover all these different roles, we let him, we let him provide, and we receive. We let him be the, the giver of life, and we learn how he wants us to live life. See, when we get all those messed up, we start, we start really messing up. That, that little list is from How People Grow with Henry Cloud and John Towns. a great book if you want to read something that will really help you grow as a Christian and, and how to help others grow. Finally, Jesus, the question is, why do we want to embrace this story? Why, why would anybody want to believe it or be comforted by it? Well, I think the reason is because Jesus joins us in the story. Jesus joins us in the story, in the suffering. Sorry. Jesus joins us in our suffering. Our faith belongs in a person, not necessarily an outcome. And so the Bible, this is an interesting idea. Jesus came and he, and he endured the cross and he suffered. And the Bible, as you read through it, it dignifies, it both dignifies suffering and affirms its temporary status. We get really hung up on the suffering thing because we, if, if you think that this life is all there is, well, then suffering's a bigger deal, isn't it? If you don't think there's an end coming to suffering, then you've got you to do more 
You got to figure out any way to either rid yourself of suffering or to medicate it so you don't feel it. Which is what most people do. But if you understand that Jesus came to join us in suffering, then you understand that he came to comfort. He came to bring he came to bring healing. He came to bring peace. We are not left alone. God has come to the earth to, de to demonstrate that he understands and he has a plan to rescue us from our suffering. Look at Hebrews 2, 14. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. <laughs> I want you to take that, your pen and I want you to circle that little phrase right there. Are you guys still with me? Yeah. So I want you to circle death. Circle death because that's going to be important here in a minute. Only in this way could he set free all who have, died, who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And we also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able, everybody say able, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and Jesus is able to give us the grace and strength we need. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us in our suffering. He joins us in it and then provides for us. He provides hope. Some might say, well, that, that, that feels cheap to me. Why can't he just get rid of it? And I would say to you, he will. He will. It leads us to number three, which is death is the final enemy conquered. Death is the final enemy conquered. If death is conquered, think about it. If death is conquered, then we fear nothing. And anything is possible. Because death is the worst possible thing that can happen to any of us. If death is the thing that's been conquered, then healing is possible. That's easy. If death is no longer the issue, then we don't have to fear it. And if we don't fear it, then anything is possible. Even if we die, we are not destroyed. Even if our children die or in, are in danger, resurrection power is in us and with us. There's a scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. In your notes, it says, resurrection life is the hope. Resurrection life is the hope that we must cling to. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. If death is destroyed, then hope lives. Christ conquers death. We have faith that death is not the end for us. Think about this for a second. If God is, okay, this is a little tricky, but if God is outside of time, right? If God is, if, is a being that existed before time and he exists after time, he exists in something we would call eternity, right? He dwells in eternity. And here's the thing. 
Are you guys tracking with me? As soon as I started talking theology, you guys went like this. If God dwells in eternity, we're on our way to eternity. Eternal life actually is in us now, and we are going to live outside the realm of time with him. Look at what Revelation 21, 4 says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no, more, no mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of, the, of things has passed away. The old order is being controlled by time. There is a plan to end suffering and evil, but most people don't like it. This is the bottom line. And here's how I would coach you to talk about it with people. As you're talking about it, talking about the four forces at work in the earth and how difficult this is and maybe, this, maybe a little bit about the story, you know, and then finally it comes down to why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad people and, and, and save all the good people? Okay. Number one, the problem is we're all bad. There was only one who was perfect and they killed him for it. <laughs> so they, they, they start asking this question. You're like, well, Actually, that's what he is trying to do. And he will, as the judge, one day put an end to all injustice and all suffering and all evil. There will be a day of accounting. There is a moment. And so, so when you're talking about this, I would encourage you to say something like this. You know, the thing about God is there is, there, there is a plan to rid the whole world of suffering and evil, but you you probably don't want to hear it. People, people don't really like it. It, it makes them uncomfortable. So I don't, you know, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Do, do you want to hear it? And then you begin to unfold the message of the gospel. How God created something perfect. It was marred by humanity. Jesus shows up in the middle of God's purpose and ushers in the kingdom of God and one day, all things will be restored as they should be. Every injustice will be dealt with in the, in the most merciful way because God is an expert at both justice and mercy. And he's worth trusting. I think we have to have confidence that there is something coming and something, someone who has already come and when we do, we really begin to be able to have the conversation. But better than that, we get courage. We have faith to be able to have the conversation. We get courage, faith to be able to live our lives in a way that surrenders to him and the way that, in a way that deals with suffering in an honoring way. Like There's other places in the Bible where the, where the scriptures teach suffering can be useful to train our character, all right? But that's not it. That's not all it is. It's a moment and an opportunity for Jesus to join you, for to meet you in your moment of pain. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? And I just want you to, I just want you to think about these, this subject in regards to your own life. What is it that is causing such suffering in your life? Would you be willing to let Jesus meet you right there? What are you so frustrated with that God needs to come with his peace and his, his hope and fill your life with it?
Maybe you're here and you don't even have a relationship with God and you, you, you're, you've been frustrated with him because you want things to be like you want them to be, but really you're starting to understand today that there is a, a journey you're going to have to take where you recognize him as who he is and, and, and surrender to him. If you'd be willing to do that, if you'd be willing to surrender to him, I want to pray with you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if you're here and, and you say, Pastor, I, I, it's been a long time since I responded to God or, or, or even included him in my life. Maybe it's, maybe it's never been a, a thing for you. But here you are. You find yourself here and God is speaking to you and he's whispering to you and he's saying, look, son, daughter, I want to know you. I want you to know me. That's why all the, the risk of all these things that have happened in the world, I was willing to take the risk to know you. If you want to commit your life to Christ today, you want to say yes, I just want you to say, Pastor, please pray for me by lifting your hand straight up in the air right now. Yep, I see you over here. Who else? Yep, right here. Who else? Such good decisions all over the room. Who else? Anybody in the back? Yes. Hey, listen, if, if you feel it, if you sense it in your gut, don't argue with Jesus. <laughs> don't argue with him. Just surrender. Anybody else? Yep, I see you. I see you. God sees you. Come on, pray this prayer with me, everybody. Everybody, just repeat after me. Say it out loud. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus who joins me in my suffering. Forgive me for doing my own thing, insisting on my own way. I surrender. I yield. I give up. I ask you to give me peace, strength, hope. Forgive me, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for a perfect plan, a perfect purpose for every one of our lives. Father, I pray that you would seal the work that you're doing in every heart right now and under, help us understand what's at stake as we make decisions and how important it is for us to follow you. We thank you for this. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.